Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that any time you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Begin our thoughts to Psalm chapter 51, verse 4. Psalm 51, verse 4 is David's psalm that he wrote in the Holy Spirit uh, after the situation with himself and Bathsheba, which I know those of you that are Bible students will be familiar with. David uh, did not go out to war with his armies. He wasn't where he was supposed to be, doing what he was supposed to be doing. And he was reclining on his rooftop, which happened to look down over Bathsheba's house. It was the house of Uriah the Hittite, one of David's mighty warriors and a loyal man. Uh, But Uriah was out where he was supposed to be, serving with the army, fighting against the enemies of Israel. And uh, his wife Bathsheba was at home bathing on her rooftop, probably well aware that it was within sight of the king's palace. Nevertheless, what uh, came from that was an adulterous relationship. A, a pregnancy resulted from that adulterous relationship. And David, desperate to cover his tracks, ended up murdering Uriah by proxy. And Nathan the prophet was sent by God to confront David. And he told him a little parable about a rich man that had a flocks of sheep. A guest was coming to visit, and he didn't want to slaughter any of his own sheep, so... A poor man just had one little ewe lamb that was actually really a pet to him and his children. And so rather than slaughtering one of his many sheep, he he took the ewe lamb that belonged to this poor man and slaughtered it to feed his guest. And David, of course, being the chief executive officer of justice in Israel, God's right hand of wrath against evildoers, sinners, and criminals in Israel, says the man that has done this deserves to die. And Nathan said those famous words that I'll say the same way the King James says it, thou art the man. And David immediately recognized the truth of that judgment and he confessed his sin. And God forgave his sin and yet terrible consequences came from the sin. But David writes in the Holy Spirit Psalm 51, as an expression of his grief, of his sorrow, and of his repentance about the terrible things that he'd done. And in verse 4, he says this. The ESV says it this way. He's speaking to God. It's a prayer. Psalm 51 is a prayer to God. And he says, against you, against you, God, you only, notice that, you only have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You know, the truth of the matter is that David had sinned against his whole people, his whole nation. David had sinned certainly against Bathsheba, and he had certainly sinned against Uriah the Hittite. David had sinned against a whole lot of people. And and so David is not denying any of that, but in the Holy Spirit, he is being guided by the God that he has sinned against through inspiration, David being a prophet, to communicate the actual bottom line truth of all sin. Regardless of who is hurt in the shockwaves of evil that spread out in every direction from sin, all sin is ultimately 
against God alone. And this is why God repeatedly says in Scripture, do not avenge yourselves, beloved. Give place to the Lord. The Lord says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. He is the one, brothers and sisters, that we have sinned against. Even though the New English translation doesn't literally translate the phrase, which in the Hebrew is you only or only you, it does give us, I think, the gist of what the psalm is trying to say. The New English translation says against you, David speaking, praying to God, you above all. So David is not denying the people that have been hurt by sin. He's simply saying that God, really, my obligation and repentance is to you above all. And he, of course, did repent. And he was forgiven. And I want you to keep this verse in mind. Today we're talking about the motivation for repentance. The reason why genuine repentance is genuine. And it's about godly versus worldly sorrow. And if you're familiar with the the idea of godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow, you'll know that it comes from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 5 through 11, where I'm going to read the words of the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 5 through 11, starts on page 1028 in your pew Bible. Here the Word of God says, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, Paul talking about himself and his missionary team, he says, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Verse 6, Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, this is the letter that uh, we, we infer Paul wrote between First and Second Corinthians. And it was a harsh letter, he says, later in this epistle, uh, about the sins that were dominant in that ancient church. And so some folks were were hurt, we'll just say, that were made sorry by the things that the Apostle Paul says. He says, for even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. In other words, he, he thought for a little bit maybe he'd been too harsh, all right? But now he realizes that he had not been. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now, verse 9, I rejoice. Not that you were made sorry, he says, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, before I read verse 11, close out this reading, I just want you to notice the very stark contrast that Paul draws in verse 10. Two ways to be sorry. One leads to repentance leading to salvation without regret. The other leads to death. And these are the only two roads that the apostle offers us 
with regard to our motivations for repentance. Verse 11, for observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication in all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. What a powerful passage. And so as we think about this, we ask the question, what is the difference between worldly and godly sorrow? Because apparently, based upon the the ultimate destinations of either of those two pathways, either of those two motivations for the changes we make in our lives, the the two destinations are so different. And, And one is to be sought with all of our hearts, salvation without regret, leading to eternal life and joy and bliss in the presence of God. The other is just death leading to more death. And so there could not be a a stronger reason for us to choose rightly to nurse the proper motivations in our hearts for repentance. So what is worldly sorrow? Worldly sorrow is superficial. It's on the surface. It's on the outside. And because it is not rooted deeply in the heart, it is temporary and always temporary. It is focused on self, focused on the self. Cain, for instance, when his sacrifice had been rejected by God, for whatever reason, it was not offered with the right spirit. At the very least, his sorrow was worldly sorrow, not godly sorrow. It was focused on himself. Poor me, self-pity, and that destroyed him. It led to death, brothers and sisters, just like Paul says in our passage in 2 Corinthians. Uh, And so it is about the self. Oh, poor me. Oh, this is about me. Oh, me, me, me. And the regret of worldly sorrow is often over getting caught rather than actual remorse. In other words, there are many people that put on a show of contrition, an outward show of contrition, which they never would have showed had they not been caught in the sin or exposed in the sin that they had committed. And so the concern is more uh, over being caught, over the, the personal feelings that they have over being caught, not really a deep contrition over what they've done. And sometimes it's just sorrow over consequences, not even so much a focus on being caught, but just upset that there are, in fact, bad consequences that come from sin. And so people are upset about the consequences, but that deep down inside that they, they feel maybe that the consequences are too harsh, or maybe that they really don't deserve it, or maybe that life has been unfair to them. After all, nobody's perfect, so why am I having to suffer for something that, well, many people have done? This is worldly sorrow, fleshly sorrow, unspiritual sorrow, demonic sorrow. I don't spend much time trying to understand the psychology of Satan, but I just got a feeling he feels sorry for himself. Just a thought. What about godly sorrow? Godly sorrow begins with genuine humility. The kind of humility that when David was confronted by Nathan the prophet, he said, I have sinned. I have sinned. He humbled himself in the presence of God. And flowing from humility, that is recognizing what David recognized, that our sins are ultimately against God. And if you have sinned, as all will do at some point in life, then you realize you've sinned against God and you've got to deal with God. And that's the ultimate uh, fact of the matter there. You've got to deal with God. And therefore, contrition is the proper response. It is to bow the knee, maybe literally, but remember, it's not about outward things. 
Worldly sorrow is always about outward things, just putting on a show, going through the outward steps with the heart not necessarily in it. It's okay to go through the outward steps. It's okay to fall flat on your face before God. It's okay to bow the knee to God. It's okay to lift up your hands in prayer to God and do all of those outward things. But what really matters is what's going on on the inside. That's what matters. Have you bowed down before Almighty God in your heart? That's the real question of godly sorrow. And so it's contrition. And God has told us in Scripture that he will never, ever reject a soft and contrite heart. When you come before God in contrition, he will forgive you. And he will accept your repentance. So godly sorrow is focused on the offense against God and, by extension, the offense against others. Genuine repentance, genuine remorse for what has been done. And it comes from the conviction of sin, which is the work of the Holy Spirit. And it is accomplished through the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But the result of godly sorrow is always transformation. If no transformation of mind, if no transformation of heart in life is resulting from one's supposed sorrow over what they've done, then it has to be worldly sorrow. It cannot be godly sorrow because godly sorrow always produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 7 says. And so this transformation begins, and I don't usually use alliteration in my preaching, but I hope that you'll recognize these four R's here, and maybe it'll make it easier to remember what results from godly sorrow, which leads to genuine repentance, remission, restoration, release, no regrets. Let's talk about that just a minute. Remission is uh, maybe not the most common word we use, but Acts 2.38, for instance, when Peter says, let every one of you be baptized, uh, let every one of you repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. That's the old wording of that. Most of the modern Bible versions in English today will say forgiveness of your sins. And that's great because forgiveness is a part of that. But I really do like the word, the old word remission better because it's a bigger umbrella word. And, and therefore it includes more of the reality of what happens when God remits our sins or releases us from our sins when we come to him in gen genuine repentance in obedience to the gospel. Remission means, and this is from Webster's Dictionary about the etymology of the word, where it comes from. Remission means release from obligation or forgiveness. In other words, if your sins are remitted, it means that God releases you from the obligations flowing from those sins. In other words, you're no longer responsible for what you've been forgiven for. In other words, it has been removed from you as far as east is from west, as David says in the Psalms. In other words, you will not have to stand before God and give an account because God has remitted the penalty of those things. They are no longer upon you. You have been truly forgiven if you have received remission of sins. And realizing that, if that doesn't make you love God with all of your heart, then you need to look more deeply at the motivation of your repentance. You need to think more deeply about why you have sought a relationship with God. When you have received remission of sins, you've been released from their power, released from their consequences, 
The result of that is at least the attempt at the restoration of relationships. Now, I, you know, I don't know what things are going to be like on after Judgment Day when David and Uriah, I've thought about that over the years, when David and Uriah come face to face in the resurrection for the first time, my expectation is that they'll embrace each other because of what Christ has done. That's my hope. And sometimes relationships cannot be reconciled because uh, at least one of the participants is unwilling to. But when sin has been remitted, brothers and sisters, we need to be making the efforts to try to reconcile with folks that we may have hurt. And one of the things that we've got to constantly be doing as Christians is, is trying to live out the example of God's forgiveness toward us, and thus we forgive each other. And we try to restore relationships that have been damaged because of sin. But if, if you have been remitted or released from the power of sin, then flowing from that, you've also been released from enslavement. So sin is enslaving. All sin is addictive. Our culture sometimes thinks that the only things that are addictive are things like, you know, gambling or alcohol or drug abuse or, you know, but, but over the past several decades, we've, we've become more and more familiar with the fact that people can get addicted to just about anything. Certainly, there are kleptomaniacs that are addicted to stealing. And we've seen folks that are filthy rich, <laughs> not just by America's standards, but by the world's standards, that have been caught shoplifting because they've got this addiction to the rush that comes from taking something that doesn't belong to themselves. I anything. Anger can be an addiction. Sex can be addiction. Anything that is sinful will enslave you if you allow it to continue to exist in your life. But one of the things that God has done, and this, brothers and sisters, we're going to continue to focus on as this series continues, because I have at least two more lessons in this series, Lord willing. We're going to focus on the fact that as Christians, something has really been changed in us. God has changed our reality on the inside. This transformation that God is working in us is not just words, brothers and sisters. It is power. God has given all baptized believers who have genuinely repented in godly sorrow for the things that they've done. He's given, given us the power to overcome our weaknesses, the power to defeat sin in our lives. And that's something that I think has been kind of on the back burner in preaching in Christendom in the past couple of decades as the church has often mirrored the world's embrace of weakness and embrace of brokenness and celebration of brokenness and all of that sort of thing. It has kind of diverted people's eyes off of the core truth of the gospel and that is that through repentance God has given us the power to be victorious over sin in our lives. Brothers and sisters, that is the gospel truth. And this process leads, as Paul says in our text, to this repentance leading to salvation with no regrets. That means that you are able to live, my brothers and sisters in Christ, it really is possible that you can live a life free from guilt. You really can. Because what Jesus has done is real. And it really has paid the price for the sins that we've committed in our lives. And so all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3 verse 23 the least you can do is be sorry about it, right? The least you can do is be sorry about what you've done. Godly sorrow over sin comes from being godly. I, I just want to focus on that phrase. 
You know, I, I, people wonder sometimes about the difference between godly and worldly sorrow. I don't think in this whole sermon today you're going to recognize anything that is particularly scholarly, <laughs> all that deep necessarily, because Paul is not trying to be particularly scholarly in this passage. The Holy Spirit is not trying to make this confusing. He, he uses the, the, uh, the adjectives in this passage in order to describe the concepts he's talking about. So godly sorrow is sorrow that's godly. So if we understand what godliness is, then we know what godly sorrow is, and we know how we can pursue cultivating a spirit of godly sorrow in our life. So godly sorrow over sins comes from being godly. Being godly is not being righteous. Being righteous is something that, that Lord willing, will ultimately flow from being godly. But being godly precedes being righteous. Being godly is coming to know the Lord in personal relationship, to know that he exists. Remember what the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews uh, chapter 11, verse 6, whoever would come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so godliness is recognizing that there is a God, that he made me, that I'm his, that he has a claim on my life that he has spoken his word into this world and that it matters and that I am subject to it whether I want to be or not. And so godliness decides, I care what God thinks. That's the foundation of godliness. It is caring what God thinks. When you start to care what God thinks, he will turn his attention in your direction for your good and for your blessing. We read throughout the Bible of people that have known the Lord or who have not known the Lord. It is this virtue or this quality of godliness that is uh, in play in those passages. And so let's just look at a couple of them and see the result. Exodus 5 verse 2. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? Who is Jehovah God? That's what he's asking. That I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord. That's what Pharaoh said. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. You see the result of not knowing the Lord? Of ungodliness? Through all of the ordeal of the release of Israel from slavery in Egypt, the ten plagues that God sent upon them, Pharaoh never repented at all because there was no godliness in him and therefore there could be no godly sorrow. Does that make sense? 1 Samuel 2 and verse 12, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. Man, that's coming from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit saying that about a person, that is just deeply, deeply disturbing and terrifying. The sons of Eli were worthless men. Why? They did not know the Lord. They didn't respect him. They did not care what God thinks. Therefore, they followed their own will. 1 Samuel 3, verse 7, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. But thank God, Samuel did come to know the Lord, and the word of the Lord was revealed to him. And brothers and sisters, that highlights the pathway to godliness. You've got to hear a word from God. Where there is no vision, the people perish, the prophet says. And what that means is where there is no prophetic vision, where there is no revelation from God, the people perish. Without the word of God, we're doomed and we're dead. 
Godly sorrow flows from godliness, and godliness flows from hearing a word from the Lord, caring what he thinks, and responding to it in faithfulness. That's what godly sorrow comes from. It comes from the preaching of the gospel, Romans 10, verse 17, and it comes from no other place. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23. The least you can do is be sorry about it. When you care what God thinks, you seek his will which exposes your sins and compels you to take action. It compels you to take action. If you will not take action when you've reached that point of godly sorrow, then you will not repent. Because repentance, it begins as a change of mind. But it is a change of mind that produces works in keeping with repentance. James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. The brother of our Lord by inspiration says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And so to say, God, I realize no one is perfect. Oh, Lord, I am a sinner. Please have mercy on me and forgive me. To say that in your heart, to say that in your prayers, whether at church or in your private life, maybe you come across a passage in the Word of God that exposes you, that condemns you, that that condemns a sin that you've been nursing in your life or you've been practicing in your life, and you realize, oh, dear Lord, I've done wrong against you. And you lift up your heart in prayer, and you say, oh, God, I've sinned against you in heaven. And then the prayer is over. You say amen, and then you get up and don't change anything. That's worldly sorrow, not godly sorrow. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, to salvation without regret. And so, brothers and sisters, godly sorrow compels action. It compels action. It in no way teaches us that we are saved by our works. But brothers and sisters, if you believe, you're going to work. If you believe, you will work. And this is the truth of the Word of God. Number three, as we think about godly sorrow, godly sorrow always leads to the journey of the biblical lifestyle. I want you just to meditate on that statement for just a moment, please. Godly sorrow always leads to the journey. It's a journey throughout this life, a process. It will be characterized by progress if you keep the faith. But it is a journey, the journey of the biblical lifestyle. In other words, continuing to prayerfully study the word, Continue to allow it to correct you and change you. Continue to allow it to guide your footsteps so that progressively, as long as you live, you get better, you get stronger. The deliverance from sin's power in your life becomes more and more complete. And that is what the Bible calls spiritual growth. And what it ultimately results in is us being more and more like Jesus from the inside out in every way. And that lifestyle comes from, brothers and sisters, it comes from prayerfully studying this book. 
And if you're a person who is godly and a person who therefore has godly sorrow about the sins and the mistakes you've made in your life, what can you do but turn to God and open his word and say, Lord, I have messed things up. How, Lord, can you help me to set them right? That's the journey of the biblical lifestyle. And it's a journey we continue in as long as we live. And yes, its destination is glory. Praise the Lord. But for now, it's a journey, which is in simplest terms, the imitation of Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, be sorry for what you've done wrong. Be sorry for what you've done wrong. And for why you did it. But most importantly, humble yourself before the one that you sinned against. It's about a relationship with God. It's just about those words from David in Psalm 51.4. Brothers and sisters, this is the foundation of repentance. This is the only true motivation for repentance. It is the only condition of the heart that leads to salvation. It is humble contrition before the God against who? Against only whom we have sinned. Do you need to get your life right with God today? Do you need to make that change? Brothers and sisters, the opportunity this morning is yours, and I wonder what's on all of our hearts today. Is there something on your heart today that you need to make right with God? If it's something that you can pray about there in the pew, get things right, please do. If it's something that you need the prayers of this church about, we pray that you will come forward and ask for them. We'd be honored to offer them to heaven in your behalf. And this morning, if you are a person who understand that you are a sinner, you sinned against God, You've come to an age of accountability. You know right from wrong. You know you've done wrong. you got to judge. He's also your father. He doesn't want to judge you. He wants to save you. He wants to pardon you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to release you. He wants to remit the power of sin from your life. But you've got to obey the commandment in genuine repentance to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. If you're subject to that gospel invitation, front pews are open. Why not come as we together stand and sing? Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.